Hello there and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. Today we are taking the questions that were left over from Paradox After Dark and we are answering them with the pastoral staff of Paradox. This one gets pretty wild. Thanks so much for listening. All right, hello and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. We have two in-studio guests today, Mandy Cordero. Hello. And Adam Washington. Great to be here. And we are taking the leftover questions from Paradox After Dark, and we're going to try to answer them or say something about them and see what happens. So uh, just before we get started, a few quick rules. We are assuming that you as a listener are over the age of 18. We would all speak to you differently if you were under the age of 18. So if you are under the age of 18, we encourage you to speak with either a pastor or a mentor or a parent about some of the questions you might have after hearing this. Um, but we're going to operate assuming that you're over the age of 18. Also, we will be using sexually explicit terms and talking about adult content and themes. So if that's not what you signed up for, then go ahead and turn off the podcast. It's totally fine. So these questions are from real people who wrote in during Paradox After Dark on February 28. And we just ran out of time to talk about them because there were a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. And so we are going to continue with these questions from real people who attended Paradox After Dark. Adam, what is the first question you got? Yeah, so originally the first question was pretty heavy, so I, I flipped through a couple and then found one that was a little more of a softball to start with. So uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll warm up with this one. The first question is, how important is religion in relationships? Do interreligious relationships work? I know people, I know marriages where both uh, people in the marriage are the same denomination, same belief system, same structure, and they're miserable. Mm. Uh, and they have a very, I would call it a bad marriage, an unhealthy marriage. I know people where one person is a Christian and one person is an atheist, and they have a very happy and healthy marriage. Um, I just spent time with one about two weeks ago, and they're just crossing 10 years, and they have two kids, and they've got you know, it's still a marriage they need to work on and they still have their own struggles, but they're very happy and healthy. Um, I would say that uh, th there's obviously verses that people like to quote out of context, specifically, do not be unequally yoked. We actually have a question about that do. somewhere. Okay, well, that yeah. will come up here in a minute. Um, but I think it's important for us to um, acknowledge that religion is not the ultimate determinant. Uh, shared religion is not the ultimate determinant of a healthy marriage. I would say that respect is much more important, mutual respect. What do you guys think? I think that's well said. Um, I was going to add with mutually res mutually respected, um, I would add communication as a part of that. But I think your answer is really well said. There's this segment on one of the NBA shows I watch called Something, Nothing, or Everything. And the first part of the question is how important is religion in relationships? And I would say it's, it's something. It's not nothing, but it's not everything. There's there's some things to consider in backgrounds that you may have different, that you might have to be more intentional about communication with or more intentional about understanding another person's worldview. But as, as Craig mentioned, um, having the same religion does not guarantee a marriage without conflict or complications or does not guarantee a healthy marriage. And so I think rather than um, looking at verses that kind of, uh, and taking verses like that out of context or verses that would say that like you have to have the same religion and, and, uh, kind of running with those, we should uh, spend more time thinking about how two people work together as individuals. 
Yeah, and I think if you don't respect or are interested in what your partner believes, that's probably going to be a yeah. bad thing. So if it was <laughs> nothing, it'd be a big problem. But you, if you have respect for what the other person believes, even if it's different than what you believe, I think you can have a very happy and healthy uh, romantic relationship or engagement or marriage. So, Agreed. Great. Next question. How does God feel about sexual fantasies that have no crossover in real life? And this person goes on to write, there are scenarios that I find attractive and appealing, but have no interest in participating in real life uh, in indulging those thoughts. Is that a sin? And so it's saying, like, if I have thoughts about, like, things that are outside of, like, realism, but I don't really want to participate in them, is that a sin? Yeah, I, I, I know like one that some people would say is like a rape fantasy. Mm. Is that a sin to have those thoughts and indulge in that and enjoy, derive pleasure from that fantasy? Mm. I'm going to go first because I don't see you guys jumping on the microphone. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't expecting that. I think that the church loves to micromanage people's uh, sexual mm. fantasies. I, lo- mm. I think that they really like to tell people what's okay to think and what's not okay to think. And the fact is, as long as those fantasies stay fantasies, there's really no harm that's done and we can't ever know what that is. Mm. And I think that we've spent an inordinate amount of effort telling people what's okay to fantasize about and what's not when there are people who fantasize about things that uh, they would never choose in real life and they can help have a healthy separation between what is fantasy and what is reality reality. So I personally don't find it to be very sinful. Um, I know that that can be problematic being a cisgender um, male. Um, but for me, I uh, there's a couple of verses that talk about that, specifically where Jesus is saying, whoever looks at another woman in lust is com- has committed adultery. I read that, and it's much more about external behaviors as far as um, it has a lot more to say, like when men blame women for what they're wearing, for why they assaulted them. Um, and the fact that Jesus says, goes on to say, like, if a woman is causing you to lust, rip out your own eyeballs. Um, don't blame her. And that's where it speaks volumes to me. Um, I actually think fantasies are very helpful to understanding who you are and should be explored and tried to, to I, I don't know if understood is the right term as much as to really start to think about, like, who you are and what it is or who God has created you to be. I think is a very healthy way to do it. And the fact is um, there's a Netflix show called uh, Sex Explained with Janelle Monet, who, who um, narrates it or she's the narrator of it. And in that uh, Netflix show, she shows that people rape fantasies are much more common than you would think, but mm-hmm. very few people actually act on those. And um, and I'll, I'll tell you, that's not something I'm into. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, I don't want us to spend a lot of time going after people's fantasies because I think there's much more pressing issues like the fact that the planet's on fire um, or actually taking down or, you know, actually standing up against sexual assault in real life that to start getting into fantasies and what's okay to fantasize about and what's not. I just don't find it to be a very fruitful conversation. Yeah, if I, I think that Christianity and, and church a lot of times does spend a lot of energy trying to not just police people's fantasies, but trying to like, I don't know, egg out of people what their fantasies are and like trying to figure out like and set all these guidelines that that like really don't speak to individualism. And I know like individualism as a concept can have problems and like it's very like especially in America, it's very it's like we have a very heightened sense of individualism and stuff. But uh I think when it comes to so many of these issues, it just comes back to 
uh, like the only thing I'd be concerned about with fantasies is, is always respect for women and like and a marginalized group that's been oppressed through sex over the years and that kind of stuff. So I think that that would be my only caution. But um, in terms of, yeah, in terms of, of fantasies, I think there's so much that Christianity spends on like trying to trying to get like these details right that are so individual, like that comes down so much to like individual preferences. And, and I remember like growing up in high school, um, we would have teachers that would teach us sex ed and just be so specific about what sex acts were okay and what sex were acts were not okay. Really no scriptural basis. I call it like philosophical opinion a lot of times. So like kind of invent like and use texts and Christianity's like popular thought to kind of invent a policy for different sexual practices. And I'd say that's, that's not very biblical. That's not very like, that's not really getting to individualism, which is what uh, this kind of question, I think that's the only kind of way to answer this is, is it on an individual basis? Well, I'd like to add, like the minute you externalize it in any way, shape or form, it ceases to be a fantasy. So like if you fantasize about someone, I really don't think that's a problem. The minute you tell someone I have fantasized about you, without their consent, that's a big problem because it ceased to be a fantasy at that Mm -hmm. point. Um, So for instance, it can be a good thing for partners to talk about how they fantasize about each other, right? That's a consensual romantic relationship. And the minute it's externalized, it ceases to be a fantasy and instead uh, becomes um, a sexual act, so. Yeah, I think what I'm thinking of on this question is, yeah, that differentiate differentiation between fantasy and reality um i am always a little hesitant when when someone says oh it's a fantasy and it will never ever happen because i think that ignores the the potential of i'm a human and i can carry out these acts um and so i think if there was an acknowledgement of like yes i am human and i could potentially um, cause harm or uh, I'm thinking specifically of, of the rape fantasies. I could potentially cause harm, but because I know I have that potential in me, I'm choosing not to and keep it as a fantasy. I think that's a really important distinction to make. So just being aware, I do have the potential, but I choose not to. Yeah. Yeah. And I think if, uh, I think that's really well said. I think the minute you feel like you're a victim to your fantasies is Mm. when we really crossed into dangerous territory. Um, when you derive pleasure from your fantasies and understand that there are limitations to those, mm-hmm. that's when it's, in my opinion, uh, you're not dealing with sin. <laughs> yes. The minute that you start to externalize those in any way, shape, or form, um, that's when it starts to become problematic. And when you start to think like, well, I'm above that or I, I can't participate in that, that's when it becomes really problematic. Yeah, I also thought of the verse that you talked about in terms of uh, if you lust out of after a woman, poke out your own eye. That verse has been used to almost condemn just sex in general. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think of, uh, I want to say it's Leo Tolstoy. I'm like 99.9% positive this is who I'm thinking about, um, who after he wrote some of his major works, had this spiritual revelation after reading the Beatitudes and he took the Beatitudes to such an extreme that it ended up destroying this incredible life that he built with his wife and his children, um, including this, this idea, well, if you lust after a woman and he took it to such an extreme that he just 
never had sex with his wife ever again. And his wife was like, what the heck, man? <laughs> um, and uh, it ended up, he ended up dying I, I want to say alone at a railroad station, if I'm remembering I mean, the story. It sounds correct. very much like an author to me. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very Tolstoy. Yeah. I mean, he is the end of his books. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I just, I'm hesitant when we take these verses and we we create whole moral, moral ethics over them um, and we do it badly. Yeah, yeah. yeah I know as a, as a teenager and even in my 20s, mm-hmm. like that verse caused an extreme amount of guilt and shame within mm. me um, because it was like all of these feelings I have are condemned by, by Jesus. And uh, I remember in my freshman year in Bible class, uh, there was a teacher who was asked about that and asked in the most softball kind of question ever, which is just like, hey, this is an easy one to knock out of the park. And in my opinion, the teacher whiffed on it, which was a kid asked, is it okay? I, I know Jesus said these things about you can't lust after a woman. Is it okay for you to lust after your wife? And I think that what that ultimately was asking was, can you have sexual desire towards someone? Is that healthy? And the teacher said, you can't, you can't have sexual desire toward your, or it wasn't sexual desire. You can't lust after your wife because anytime you're in a healthy sexual relationship, you're not lusting. So <laughs> that's so sad. It was terrible. <laughs> I mean, I still so remember sad. this. This is, tw- I mean, it's almost, it's over 20 years now mm-hmm. and I can still remember that pretty vividly. So that yeah. makes me so sad, <laughs> which is why we're talking about I, it now. Yeah. <laughs> I just yeah. think that kind of thing can bring, can bring spouses, um, together. Yeah. I mean, like to be like, I don't know with your spouse, like, dude, you turned me on today. Like, that's so <laughs> nice. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. So you got another question? Though, I Manny? do. Um, all right. Can you talk about pornography in marriage? Is it adultery? What if one partner feels like it is? Hmm. Uh, I would say that when you and your spouse are in a romantic relationship and a sexual relationship, or um, even if you're not married, a communication about what is okay and not okay is ultimately going to determine whether or not you have a healthy sex life. Mm-hmm. That's the number one thing is communication. It's not physical attraction. It's being willing to communicate and be open. And if it doesn't make your spouse or your partner comfortable, um, ask why not? Why doesn't it make you comfortable? Is there alternatives to what that may offer that you could that the partner would be okay with? And you're not going to get it right the first time. You're not going to get it right the second time. You're going to have to keep communicating about it. And communication, in my opinion, is ultimately what's healthy. And if your partner is not comfortable with something, uh, then you can ask why. And there are times that couples have to go to therapy because they can't get past certain roadblocks. And that's okay. I mean, to, to shame people to go to therapy, to think that they should be able to figure out all of this on their own is problematic. So I would say that if one person in a couple or one person in a couple is uncomfortable with pornography, um, I would really encourage you to pay attention to it and not try to ignore it. Um, and if you get to the point where you one sees it as completely okay and the other one doesn't, and you just have come to an impasse, I would highly recommend counseling. Um, a good counselor is is what makes marriage really can help marriages. And there's a stigma around counseling that I think we need to get rid of. So that's that's what I recommend on that. What do you guys think? I am thinking of the Gottman Institute. And for anyone who doesn't know what the Gottman Institute is, this husband and wife 
team who specifically studies um, and works with um, marriages. And so they've, they have released a lot of information regarding pornography use in marriage. Um, and the use of it with a couple that is in agreement and they watch it together and they use it as a way of becoming sexually active together and connection together, they have found that that can have positive as a positive um, repercussions is a negative word. <laughs> I'm trying to, what is the word for that? Positive effects? Percussions. Perc- <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, positive effects in a marriage. Um, but for couples in which one half of the couple, one half of the unit is using pornography disproportionately to the other or um, against the other's wishes, then that has some really negative negative ramifications uh, for their connection and for their union. And I like I I'm of the mindset if your partner is not okay with adultery, then yeah, maybe have the conversation and go to therapy. You mean pornography. You said adultery. Pornography. <laughs> that's a bit of a different conversation. <laughs> I, thought, I thought you maybe you were that's coming over. up sometime. I know. Um, did she I, or did she or he is it adultery? Yeah. That's why oh, the word was in go. my mind. A, that was what I was like. I feel like yeah. I, yeah, yeah, pornography. Yeah, but if one if one couple like if you reach an impasse and therapy still is like no on on uh, pornography, like my instinct is like if you're committed to your partner, then then you have to you have to be committed to what will bring you together sexually. And then mm-hmm. I would also turn the questions. Not only why is it why is your partner uncomfortable with it? But why do you find it to be such a necessity? Uh-huh. I think those are important to questions to ask. There becomes a self-reflection element, I think, that needs to happen. It's well said. Yeah. Just to add to that, I'd say as a, as a Christian couple, if, if you are both Christian in the couple, it's okay to talk about these things before marriage. Yeah. Yeah. And again, we're assuming people are over 18 who are listening to this. I'm not saying like on your first date or anything, mm-hmm. when you're 14 years old, you should talk about this. But if you're thinking about getting married, if you had those conversations, it's okay to, to talk about pornography as, as a couple and not feel like just because you're Christian or one of you is Christian, that that's not something that you can talk about until marriage. Cause that's just pushing it down the road further. It's okay to have those conversations now and start learning how to compromise and communicate and uh, find what you both like or don't like or one partner likes or doesn't like and have those conversations early. Yeah, and it's okay to go back on conversations, to revisit conversations, yeah, especially after absolutely. marriage. And I think that's mm-hmm. something that's often, especially especially for, for people who wait until uh, marriage to, to have sex, I think that it's okay to revisit conversations. And that's where I think there's a lot of things that are misunderstood, especially like once you have, once you get married, it'll be very easy and you'll never have to talk about it again <laughs> because it'll just be available. Hmm. And um, I'm talking about sex and not pornography. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so there is some things about mismatched desire. Like there's some things about um, uh, just different ways of how people can be satisfied mm-hmm. that need to be revisited. And you may end up at an impasse. You will end up at an impasse. Yeah. I can't imagine not ending up at an impasse <laughs> at some point. And I mean, for my wife and I, the hardest part of our marriage was making our first counseling appointment because we were so embarrassed. I'm a pastor. I shouldn't have to go to counseling. Mm. Um, but then we went to a phenomenal counselor and she made our marriage 
hundred times better. <laughs> she got us communicating when we wouldn't communicate about things. Mm. And so I just, uh, that's, that's where it's like, it's okay if you get into a marriage and it's different than what you expect to, to revisit conversations mm-hmm. yeah. if your expectations are different yeah. and then to work through counselors. So yeah. I think that's what's so what you've said, Adam. Yeah. It's just, just about, you know, opening and that's why we're doing this whole thing, right? Is to just open the, those conversations and let you know that being a Christian or being a per- person of faith doesn't mean that you have to hide from these conversations that it actually can create healthier spaces for you and your partner if these dialogues are more open continuously. And yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up, not just once, but continuously as relationships develop. Well, even to add to that, um, I know couples who one person has come out after the marriage has happened. And there's sometimes that means it's the end of the marriage, but there's other times where um, the partner has communicated and adopted and and been part of that um, coming out process and the marriage has survived. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of going back on what <laughs> the conversation was. And, you know, there's all sorts of societal pr- pressures on queer people as far as you have to act like this to get into a marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, and then being able to go back and talk about those previous conversations and to be able to listen, I think is a very brave thing that the church has not helped couples at all mm-hmm. deal with. And uh, I've seen, seen a lot of successful marriages that, where one partner's come out and the partner stayed by their side, um, even as they've come out, which mm-hmm. I think is really, really beautiful. I do want to say as a woman, if one of my partners was like, no, I need pornography as part of our sex life, or I need pornography on the side of our sex life, there would like, there would be this huge, it would, I, it would break me, I think. Um, and I think it just becomes, it's part of that society in which women are supposed, expected to be everything. Um, they're supposed to be, uh, what is, I'm trying to remember the song, like a lady in the streets, but a freak in the sheets. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And it's like, well then, it's like there's this element of you have to be everything, but then if your spouse or your partner is, is wanting, um, is insisting or is saying, I'm incomplete without this, there would just be this huge heartbreak of, well, I'm not enough. Um, and so I do think that there's this, it's such a shaming thing for women. Um, the whole kind of realm of pornography in many ways, not all women, but many women, um, that I do think that there's that really deep element that would need to be addressed as well. Yeah. That's well said. Adam, you got another one? Oh, that's right. I'm up. Um, yeah. This one, uh, just says living together before marriage, question mark. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it happens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <I don't> no. <know>. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think the question is: Is it? Is it okay? Yeah. You know what's really funny to me about this is mm-hmm. I know several Christians who have started living together before marriage, mm-hmm. and they justify it all the time with finances. Mm. And it's so funny to me, and I, I'm not judging. I really find um, amusement in this that it's a more socially acceptable answer within Christian circles (laughs) to say, to say we're doing this for finances rather than to say, I am so in love with my partner and I just cannot wait to start my life together. (laughs) Yeah. That's 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 like a perfect metaphor for what the church is in my opinion and what, where it's failings is when it comes to sexuality. Um, People, people do it. I, I, this is where I think that consent is the most important and highest sexual ethic. If this is what people want to do, go for it. If people don't want to do this, great. There are some pluses. There are some minuses. We could quote studies, all of this stuff. Really, it comes down to what you and your partner want. 
And I've, I've, I've seen couples who have waited until they get married uh, to move in together. They've gotten divorced. I've seen couples who have moved in together before they got married. They're happy. They're free. Mm-hmm. This is, we've made this thing like a big determinant as to whether or not a marriage will be successful. I just don't find it. I don't find it interesting or helpful. And I think that consent is the most important thing in a relationship. I think that's perfectly said. I don't know if I have anything to add to that. And just, yeah, I think we've shamed so much in regards to this that it's like, I, my goodness, there's more than one way to have a beautiful, wholesome relationship. And I think the sooner we admit that as a Christian denomination, like the better people will people's lives will be i just think that we just got to stop shaming yeah i also think this opens up a a bigger question biblically and i know all three of us have talked about this before about what biblical marriage really is and how different it is from (laughs) today because when they're saying like is living before marriage uh, together before marriage okay a lot of times the reason that the answer is no in the church is because, well, marriage in the Bible is. Mm. Yeah. And then we start quoting all these texts and we have all these ideas about what marriage is, but it's really from a completely different time. So that, yeah, I don't know if we want to talk about that a little bit, but that I feel like that's a big part of this, that's true. this question. Yeah, I mean, people were getting married a lot younger back yeah. then, so there wasn't really a pressure to wait because it was like by the time you hit puberty, you were in a marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, so... We're, people are getting married later, so the church is saying wait longer mm-hmm. um, and don't get, move in together beforehand. Um, now, I, I will also tell you that we've been pretty, pretty open in what some people would consider liberal. I will tell you that when kids are involved, my mm-hmm. attitude changes really quickly. Yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> absolutely. Um, yes. You should not move in with your partner before marriage um, with your kids because this can really be problematic for kids. So I will get real conservative, if you want to call it that, when kids are involved. Um, This is the minority of cases or or couples that I know um, that go through something like this. But I've seen um, parents who move in together, or excuse me, romantic partners who move together when there's kids involved, and it's it's really hard for the kids. So that's where I'd have a different attitude on that. so, you know, consent's important, considering who, who your kids are is important mm-hmm. and all of that. But, um, yeah, we, the church right now is asking people to wait and they get, keep getting married later and later. later and and later, I'm, not right. sure that's, I'm not sure that's the best path going forward. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I love the, the, that you brought up biblical marriage ethics. I just think of the story of Esther as the first one that came to my mind (laughs) she's in essence trained in all of these like sex acts we turn it into like a beauty pageant but she's trained it's not (laughs) that or or a singing pageant or what the singing pageant or a singing pageant true (laughs) (laughs) veggie tales classic um yeah but it's like yeah like she's trained how to basically be a good sex object in essence. And we have glorified her story into being, look how brave and amazing she is. And wow, she married the king and changed like all of the community for the Jewish uh, community. And it's so much darker than that. And so I, I love the point of we should not, we should not be looking at scripture for marriage ethics because their marriage ethics are wonky to yeah. say the least. Yeah. <laughs> I read a commentator about Esther and they were saying they were saying what a lot of people miss in this story is that when she goes before the king who is technically her owner not not so much her husband mm. um, 
there's this euphemism that people often translate literally, which is he extends the golden scepter. Oh no. Which is definitely not what commentators say it actually oh, is. No. And you're like no. you're like, this story is so soaked in the patriarchy. Mm. And that's where Song of Solomon comes along and it's just like oh, it's, it's so it's so moving to me. Um, and Esther's got a lot of, um, it, it, I think, unintentional feminist stories in it, or, or two specifically. Um, but it is, it is a story about a sex slave and the patri- uh, patriarchy running amok, in my opinion. So, yeah. yeah. Um, I've got a question. To what extent should a, should sex, or excuse me, to what extent should a sex life be a part of a healthy consensual relationship, married or not? I think this is a very clever way to ask how far is too far <laughs> <laughs> really i didn't get that i didn't Can get you read that one from more there. Time? Yeah. to what extent should a sex life be a part of a healthy consensual relationship married or not mm. oh maybe it's a little different i thought i was just saying like how like if you know you had a percentage like how much of <laughs> that uh your marriage or marriage or not marriage should be okay. like focused on mm. is that yeah i, I, I kind of that... got that yeah okay. Okay not to over analyze it in percentages and data. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think this is an impossible question to answer because every partnership is different. Yeah. Um, I think it goes back to, I, I referenced uh, Celeste Holbrook during Paradox After Dark and I, I go back to that, right? Um, this is one of her most frequent questions that she gets. How often should you have sex or how often um, is, is sex had and a good marriage is achieved, you know? And um, she's, she, her answer I loved, which is some people have it every day and other people are the ABC anniversary yeah. birthday Christmas. I'd never heard that before. I, <laughs> I love it. I thought that was I so just, funny. It's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cracking up for a while after yeah. that. <laughs> um, and I just think it's, uh, I think it comes down to communication between partners. Uh, there will be compromise uh, naturally. And I think it's naive to think that there won't be compromise. And so communication I would just add to that. I think that's very well said. I would just um, add that you cannot separate your sexuality from your romantic relationships. Mm. Um, it's part of it, yeah. um, but you can't div- you can't divorce that side from it. Um, so mm-hmm. even if you're in a romantic relationship where you guys have both said you're going to wait for marriage, you, your sexuality is part of that yes. and it influences it in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's 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 definitely part of it. The minute it becomes all of it, um, well then, then you're acting more on an animalistic side than a human side, in my opinion. So that's where I would say it's part of it, but it's not all of it. I think that's, that's a great point because it, that's more of a whole holistic approach to sexuality. And I think some, sometimes like Christianity has tried to divorce sex from romance or sexuality and that kind of thing where it's like when you're dating it's like romantic but there's no sex and then when you get married then there's sex and and you know then it's the full package as if like you know there's <laughs> not as if it's not all, just a part of living and life and and being a human being in general i think a a holistic approach to sexuality is very much needed in, in christianity and that's a that's a good start mm. for sure Manny, what do you got? Next question. Hmm. It's related, actually. Does equally yoked apply to sex drives and libido? How do you compromise with your partner? There it is. There it is. 
Equally yoked is in Corinthians. Is that right? I believe so. First Corinthians? I believe so. Okay. It's important for us always, especially when studying the letters of Paul, which are letters to people, to ask, what is the thesis statement of this letter? <laughs> and when you ask people what the thesis statement of Corinthians, first Corinthians is, very few people can answer, in my opinion. Very few people are willing to even think about the letter in that way. Actually, Second so, Corinthians. Oh, Second Corinthians. Okay, so what's the, what's the thesis of Second Corinthians? Second Corinthians is Paul writing to a community who um, has gone from bad to worse. Some scholars believe that he wrote First Corinthians to try to solve a problem, and then that problem actually became worse because of his letter. <laughs> and so Second Corinthians is written from a much more broken place, yeah. and him trying to say, like, I, I know I made things worse. I'm sorry. Let me tell you what I've understood things to be. And anytime you talk about equally yoked, which is a metaphor, and I'm not 100% sure how he's used it, but about equally yoked being to married to people who are non-believers, I think you're placing a lot of emphasis on a side verse or a few words out of an entire letter that's written about an entire thing. And when I've, when I've spoken to people about being equally yoked or unequally yoked, it's very rarely in the context of, I know Paul wrote this letter about um, to trying to reconcile things and they made things worse in the first one. That just never happens. No. Mm -hmm. So that's the whole idea of the letter. So we should be more infatuated with the thesis statement than the individual verses of the Bible, in my opinion. Yeah. It's kind of funny. I, I always wonder how like certain texts like that will make their way into mainstream, mainstream Christianity and kind of stick because sometimes they can just be so random, like from Old Testament mm -hmm. or New Testament or for Paul's letters or as you said, like there's a whole letter there, but there's this one phrase that you say equally yoked around most Christians and everybody knows what you're talking about. Mm. It's so interesting that that's kind of what got the priority. And more than that, at the cost of the other things, right? So it's like we've elevated this one text and also minimized other texts in the process that uh, kind of do a disservice, especially to, yeah, I think the context is, is talking about unbelievers and that kind of stuff. And I'm, man, that's caused some damage in, in relationships because of taking that text out of, out of its place. I have heard of that text being used for, for the same religion, same denomination. Mm -hmm. I have had people talk about, oh, well, well, we're not equally yoked because I pray more than such so and so. I know. <laughs> and so like I just I have a I like bleh, I struggle with it. Establishes it establishes a spiritual hierarchy. Yeah. Yes. And that's, exactly. that's a great way to like put that's it. the anti gospel of Jesus yeah. Christ. And, and I'm I'm tired of talking about this verse. <laughs> I, I really am because it's like, well, you know, I'm better than this person. Mm. Well, your marriage is gonna suck if you think yeah. that. Yeah. Like no matter what. And and our church, I'm sorry, I'm fired up. Our church, <laughs> our church is filled with people who are quote unquote unequally yoked. We have so mm. many people at Paradox who one is an atheist and one is a Christian and mm. the Christian grew up in church and Paradox is the compromise where mm. they come to church. And these people are awesome, beautiful, wonderful people. They have healthy marriages that I would love for my daughter to have as healthy of marriage as they do. And um, we need to get rid of the spiritual hierarchy. Mm. I think I cut you off. I'm sorry. No, that's fine. <laughs> I, you expressed what I was feeling beautifully. Um, I do think that it's interesting bringing this into um, like libido. Mm. I do think, I, I don't know if I've ever heard this text yeah. being used in that context I before. Yeah. Um, I do think, I do think it hits a really interesting 
worry and problem um, that I I have at least within my group of women friends it it's a deep concern for many of them I don't I don't know why I've become this person in my group of friends, but somehow I have become the person where all of my women friends had at some point asked me, how many times do you have sex with your husband? And it always, like, it feels like such a personal question and it feels like such like, oh, maybe you've crossed a boundary, but they're also coming from this incredibly deep place of shame that uh, it's, they're just curious, like, am I being a wife in a correct, in a good way. And I, like, I ache for them because it comes down to this. I, I am actually very intrigued by this equally yoked language because culture has said uh, men have the normal libido and women mm -hmm. should be up there with them. Um, and this is, this is completely a heterosexual kind of approach that I'm taking. I want to name that right now. Um, even within same-sex couples, my understanding is there will be differences in libido. Um, but I just, it comes down to conversation and it comes down to finding a partner uh, that, that isn't shaming. It comes down to, comp to compromise. It comes down to, um, like, yeah, I can't say compromise enough conversation. I don't know if I'm saying that well. Yeah. I think compromise is often viewed as a bad thing, but if anybody says I want to get married so I can do my own thing, I think that's <laughs> yeah. the point, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, you will compromise yeah. and, um, I mean, that, that's part of it. And mm. this is where you and your partner, you know, s straight, gay, or, or anything mm -hmm. else, um, this is what you get to create together. Yeah. And it's an opportunity. It's not a curse. Mm -hmm. And yeah. our church has faced, has, has, has framed this conversation. The Christian church has framed this conversation as a curse more than anything else. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's where we run into all sorts of problems. Yeah. yeah. I think also that made me think of when you're having those conversations with your partner, to believe what your partner says and to mm -hmm. be honest with your partner. Mm -hmm. Because so often a partner can say, oh, I know, yeah, I, I want to be sexual with you more. And also I recognize we're different and that's okay. But I think too often the person in the relationship with the lower libido can, can feel guilty nonetheless about it and shame themselves. And so to trust your partner and what they're saying. So that honest communication and then to trust that communication um, is important. Don't shame yourself. Yeah, yeah I think that uh, as you both have said, this is like, uh, it comes back to communication, but as it relates to scripture, like, mm. I don't think that that's, I don't think that the text applies to what this is talking about. However, it's still a, a really important conversation to talk yeah. about with your partner. Great. Adam, I think you're next. Oh, sorry. I keep forgetting him up. Um, <laughs> this kind of relates, actually. A couple questions. Is sex a need? If so, how do we reconcile this with justification for abuse or relationships in which one partner's desire is more than the other? Can you read it one more time? Sure. Is sex a need? If so, how do we reconcile this with justification for abuse or relationships in which one partner's desire is more than the other? I mean, if we had um, an asexual person on this podcast, they would say, no, it's not mm -hmm. a need. Um, I get uncomfortable when people describe it as a need because I think there is a lot of that shaming language that comes mm -hmm. with it. 
Um, I would view it as a creative opportunity, if we could call I it that. I love that. Um, <laughs> uh, in more ways than one, um, <laughs> if you want to create a child. Uh, mm, nice. But um, I, would, I would call it as more of an opportunity than anything else. As, as far as how that relates to abuse, I think that's when people um, move from a relationship of give and, give and receive to a relationship of taking. Yep. Um, mm. or lack of relationship is even a better way to say that. Um, I, I think that when you take what you think is yours rather than you give and receive in with consent, I think that's when it becomes problematic. Mm. So um, that's, that's what I would say about that stuff. I, when sex is described as a need, I get really uncomfortable because mm -hmm. there's lots of people who survived without ever having sex. I think sexuality is a reality. Mm -hmm. And okay. so I think maybe I would differentiate it that way. Uh, we are sexual people. Um, but sex is, I love the uh, sex as a need I'm also uncomfortable with. I like the, the language of opportunity. I might add responsibility. So maybe sexuality is a, is a reality, opportunity, and a responsibility. <laughs> Tie it all together in that way. Um, but I, I agree, like you, sexuality, everyone is sexual and to explore the sexuality is important, but to explore your sexuality at, at the risk of another person or at the, the violence of the towards another person or any, any form of that way, I think then you have grossly twisted what sexuality was created to be. And I think that is when you, you cross the boundary of sin, um, when you use your sexuality as a way to impose on another person. I don't know. Um, uh, I'm curious about you both think about this. I don't know. I don't have as much of a problem with sex as a need just from like an evolution standpoint. Hmm. What are your thoughts on that? I would call it more like an urge or a desire. Need, mm. need just screams entitlement to me. Mm. Yeah. I mean, need is food. Like you have to eat. Like that's, <laughs> there's no... Yeah. There's, <laughs> there's no de um, debate there. If, if you go, if you say like, I need to have sex four times a month, or what? Or what? I mean, you know, there's people that uh, go season. I mean, even the Bible has um, restrictions of seasons of uh, when sex is okay and when it's not. I mean, it, it says there's times to abstain. Um, now that's in Leviticus, which we could get into <laughs> if we wanted to, but I, I don't think it's like when I hear need, it's like, I need this or I can't function, um, yeah. which just isn't, it's, isn't true. It's part of your humanity. Yes. But it's an urge and a desire and not a need. I do think masturbation comes to play in this. I do. Like if you were to ex like lean into that need language, well then there's masturbation as a, as that option. Um, and so that's probably the only yeah. way I'd be okay with that. And there's times, of course, that we're uh, we feel like we need it, and there's times that we're uh, more mm. aroused or needing that. I understand mm. that. I would call it just a stronger urge. Mm. Um, so that's that's where I push back on that. Mm. All right, I got a question. Although I can see a reason or two for why one would want to save themselves from marriage, I don't like that the church pushes this. I find <laughs> it to be incredibly important to be sexually compatible with your partner. Thoughts? Mm. Yeah, I, I kind of agree <laughs> with the most of the things that yeah. were said there, if not all of them. I might have missed a couple words here and there, but um, yeah, I agree. I mean, not to sound like a broken record, but consent, consent, consent. Yeah. If this yeah. is what you and your partner want um, and you're adults, 
I mean, that's, that's, there's nothing stopping you. And yes, I will own that the church has been very poor at trusting you to make adult decisions for yourself. Um, this is, this is not relegated to just sexuality, but it's a many other things. Um, you are well-educated, smart people who can make decisions for yourself. Um, if you're having a hard time making a decision, the church is here to help you process through those things. But when the church becomes authoritarian, I, I shudder as well. Yeah, same. I also think there's ways, uh, for people, I, again, consent. Yes. I also think there's ways for people to figure out whether they're sexually compatible outside of sex. Um, but if that's how you want to do it, I don't have a, I don't think there's a problem with that. I also think that the act of figuring out how to have sex with a partner is an adventure when you begin it the first time anyways. And so, and with each new partner, you're going to have to kind of take on that journey over again. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I have a problem with it. I think consent is the big thing. Communication is the big thing. Yeah. yeah. Great. Mandy, next question. I understand that a lot of these sexual scenarios aren't black and white or quote unquote biblically wrong, but what is God's ideal scenario for us? What do we strive for? Uh, did you read, did either of you read Peter and uh, what, or how the Bible actually works? I did. Mm -mm, I do not. I think it can, just to give a quick summary, he's basically talking about uh, that the Bible calls us to wisdom essentially. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what, how I would answer that question is, is wisdom is what is the right, what is the right healthy decision that God is calling us to in this context. And in the book, Peter Ernst talks a lot about how, for example, Proverbs both condemns something in one sentence and then it, uh, encourages it in the next, yeah. in the next sentence. It's like, why, why are these two things in contrast? Well, it's because scripture wants us to have wisdom mm -hmm. in the decisions that we make. And there are times when this is acceptable and there's times where this other thing is acceptable depending on the context. And I think that uh, what we should always strive for is, is wisdom in, in that healthy context. Mm. That's, I, I really appreciate that answer. Yeah. I would add um, that we have this idea that God accepts us if we live up to a standard. Mm -hmm. But when you look at Genesis 1, which is the beginning of creation, and I would argue the beginning of sexuality from you know the biblical author's perspective, mm -hmm. um, God instead creates creation, and then the first commandment is be fruitful and multiply. He's like, mm -hmm. enjoy this. And then, yes, there's responsibility that's tied to this thing, but it's not like there's a standard that God is asking you to live up to. Be fruitful and multiply. Here's a world, go live in it. Love this life that you've been given. Mm. And part of that is your sexuality. Love being a sexual creature. Love this life and the whatever you create with, with this and who you create it with. Um, so I would, I would try and, uh, if this person was on this podcast or mm. you know was speaking to me in private, I would encourage them to stop viewing um, life or or what they experience their understanding of God to be as God asking you to live up to a standard or an mm -hmm. ideal and instead seeing God giving you this gift of your existence and asking mm -hmm. you what do you want to do with it I love that um yeah I I really love that actually I think of this idea of a checklist Christian uh, this idea that you have to like mark mm -hmm. off these things in order to be considered good enough quote unquote um by God and uh, I'm always really hesitant on that. And I think it comes from verses like be perfect as your father is perfect and things like that. When in actuality, um, 
that word perfect as as we understand it today isn't even like the Greek concept of perfection. It's this idea of balance and wholeness. And that I think that is the way we operate. We should operate is um, what is going to bring the most wholehearted way of living to this life. And uh, that's going to differ between people and it might make us uncomfortable sometimes. And I think that's okay. And it, yeah, it just becomes with wholeness. You next, Adam. Yes, Adam, next. go for it. What environment should healthy spirituality and sexuality create towards consenting sex workers who like their work? Obviously, the industry needs reform, but individuals with agency choose to do this work. Yeah, I'm a big believer in freedom. If this is what you want to choose to do with your life, um, great. I mean, Jesus... Uh, didn't really try to convince prostitutes to give up their prostitution. Um, and that makes people deeply uncomfortable. Um, I'll even say it makes me a little uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. You would think that Jesus would ask them to do that, but I think he was much more interested in loving people as they were rather than who he would want them to be. And I think the church can learn a great deal from that example. Um, and I quoted this at Paradox After Dark, but I'd like to put it on the podcast as well. Jesus said that prostitutes and tax collectors will lead the way into heaven. And the minute that we as a society and we as people start treating the IRS and our porn stars that way, that they are going to lead us into heaven, I think that we will experience uh, a revolution of love. I think it's well said. I don't yeah, yeah. It kind of seems like a complicated question, but at the end of the day, it's just yeah. If you're looking to get out. Um, there's ways to get out if you feel stuck, but if you love your work and you're consenting and you know what you're signed up to and you have agency and yeah. I mean, there's lots of lots of qualifiers I have to add to this mm -hmm. because we talked about how the commercialization of porn is causes, I mean, there's sex slavery tied to that. That's a big sin according yeah. to all of us. Mm -hmm. um, that's where, you know, then more power to you. And we believe that God loves mm -hmm. you fully. And, uh, and yeah, we will look to you to lead us into heaven. Hey, do you think that uh, prostitution is an is an interesting thing within within the biblical context? Um, and I think we miss that a lot. I've seen so many so many times Christendom kind of just name these women who are prostitutes in scriptures as harlots and brazen women. And <laughs> I, sorry, I'm like laughing at my own terminology. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and really not recognizing. Um, uh, in in biblical culture, if a woman was unconnected with a man, like she was nothing, it meant almost certain death most of the time. And prostitution was a was a way of survival um, or temple prostitution. Um, but this whole idea of choosing to be a prostitute because you love your job is not is not something that is really talked about in scripture. Um, and so, yeah, I I go to some of the things you said. It's yeah, t prostitutes and tax collectors are going to lead the way, and that's uncomfortable for us. And, yeah, we should probably just be okay with being uncomfortable. Yeah, a few weeks ago, my wife and I watched Hustlers, oh, the yeah. Constance Wu and Jennifer Lopez movie. Mm -hmm. And there's a scene where um, Constance Wu's character, Destiny, um, she, you know, she's in financial ruin. She's the, the, the financial crash of 2008 happened, and this is based on a true story. Um, 
the crash happens and all of a sudden people are spending less at strip clubs. So she decides that she's going to do a sex act and the guy rips her off. Like he says he's going to pay her $300 and it was 320s instead. It's this heartbreaking scene uh, because she didn't want to do it, but she felt driven to it because of mm. how society had treated her. Um, and uh, can you imagine if this person then came to church on the weekend and then the church told her on top of mm-hmm. all of those feelings, what you're doing is a sin. Yeah. I don't think that's the message of Jesus Christ no. at all. And that's where, um, that's where I think we as a church could be much kinder and more understanding of the ways of Jesus when it comes mm-hmm. specifically to sex workers. All right. Has birth control changed the morality of sex? Does whether or not you get pregnant affect morality of sex? No. It hasn't changed the morality of sex for you. I don't know. Maybe I just spoke too soon. (laughs) (laughs) Well, why do you say no? Because people were having sex. I mean, you hear the stories of the Victorian era and like, you know, like people were having sex way before like birth control was a thing. (laughs) Um, And then on top of that, like the abuse of sexuality was happening way before birth control became a thing. And so, no, if anything, it's given women more autonomy over their bodies. Um, And so part of me is like, maybe it's better, but this is like, 100,000% because more than 100%. Sorry, It's definitely more than 100%. Yeah, 100,000%. I feel like it's better. I don't know. Am I crazy? I can't. I did a sermon on this, and I'm 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 like racking my brain to try to get the reference, but it shows that access to birth control for women empowers women in society pretty much everywhere in in the world. And I I can look at it. I know exactly what sermon it's at. I have to to post it Mm -hmm. um, as a link to this. But basically, it's this idea that once women aren't, when they can have sex with who they want to have sex with, and they don't have to, you know, be pregnant for the next 10 Mm -hmm. months, it's actually very empowering to what they can and can't do with their lives. Um, and I was never told (laughs) growing up or growing in church school that birth control was actually empowering women. Mm. Um, and the more that we as societies provide access to birth control for women in its many ways, shapes and forms, the more women are empowered. So it's actually a women's liberation issue that not enough people talk about. So Mm. I would say that it has changed the morality of sex. Uh, well, maybe not the morality, but it has changed the equality of sex Mm. and, um, given women more opportunity and more equality within the world today. Yeah, I was going to, I was going to say the same thing. The only thing I was thinking of, of how birth control and, and morality for this question were related was, you know, you, you'll hear like some of those stories about certain denominations that'll say like birth control is not God's natural order of things. Mm-hmm. Or you're not supposed to do that and how that just takes away power choice and equality from, from women. So I think birth control in that sense can change morality to be better <laughs> and we'll yeah. see and i i would i would uh, there's a problem with that because i was hanging out with some white supremacists who are very maga e, and Gosh. Uh, just, just like you do you know just like you do. <laughs> it was one of those things you realize you're like oh you're on that team okay <laughs> um and they were they were railing against um not illegal immigrants, but Mexican Americans and saying like those people, they like to have eight, nine kids. And you know, it's, it's, I just can't believe it that they're taking too much from this country, all this stuff. And I said, hold on, 
you have to understand that they go to a church that tells them that birth control is a sin. Yeah. So let's talk about the church being the problem and not them, because I, I you know, I don't blame them for not taking birth control mm. when the church says over and over again that this is a sin. So this is a systemic problem that we need to address because um, the church, especially the Catholic church, and I love my Catholic brothers and sisters, but mm. the Catholic church has really stood up and said, we are against birth control. They withhold um, withhold certain procedures if it uh, interferes with reproduction uh, from their health insurances that they provide. And this is a problem that the church has to, to address. And I don't think it's enough for paradox to just be silent on the issue. We have to be pro-birth control because mm-hmm. it is a women's equality issue and it is uh, a better way to live um, in this era and this climate and this planet of over, uh, uh, bordering on overpopulation. Absolutely. I was thinking as you were talking about the Catholic Church and the various denominations who condemn birth control, all I could think of was those rules were definitely written by men. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Very true. Yeah, I mean, if a man, if a man had to give birth eight to ten times in his life because he didn't have access to birth control, like that that rule would just not exist. Yeah, yeah it would get changed, <laughs> yeah. changed overnight. Um, yeah, like they have the easy job of creating yeah. a child. <laughs> um, and I just, yeah, it would totally not be a thing. Yeah. <laughs> Great. All right, Manny, we've got five more questions. Oh. Five? I have three for some reason. <laughs> Here. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, right. I must have counted wrong. Is a mutual sexual three-way a sinful act? Uh, what was the question again? Is a mutual sexual three-way a sinful act? I think that the, the hard word in there is mutual. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if it's truly mutual, I, I don't think so. I think that having, yeah, that, I'll, I'll, you seem like you're <laughs> ready, to, ready to jump in. You, you can understand that there's some danger in bringing this idea up to your romantic partner because it com- can communicate that they're not enough. Right. Mm-hmm. That being said, I'm not about to stand up as part of the church and condemn someone who's been a part of this or who wants to be a part of it um, because we all have different fantasies and desires. For me personally, it's not something that I would want in my real life. Mm. Um, but uh, at the same time, like consent is once again the highest sexual ethic we have today. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that's that's your thing and you there's a way to communicate that this is mutual consent, then I mean, more power to you. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. There's ethics. Like I have a few friends who um, are very active in kind of the polyamory world, mm-hmm. um, which is something that is, is incredibly foreign to me um, and something I'm like admittedly uncomfortable with because I just am not polyamorous. Um, but yeah, they talk about there's this whole code of ethics even within like the polyamory world, especially um, not just polyamory, polyamory, but also if like three ways, because three ways don't necessarily have to occur between people who are polyamorous. Um, and so I don't, I don't know necessarily where I was going with that comment, but I just <laughs> felt like it was important to to name. Yeah. Well, and this was the one question. Polyamory was the one question I wish I could have back from mm. that paradox after dark. Mm-hmm. I wish I would have stood up and said more kindly 
if you are in a polyamorous relationship, you are welcome here at Paradox. Yeah. And I didn't do that. Instead, I went into whether it was okay or not okay. Mm-hmm. And anytime the church does that, I feel like we're not doing mm-hmm. our best work. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the thing that we can double down on ethically is mm-hmm. consent. Yeah. And that's going to look a lot like very different things for very mm-hmm. different things that you want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of complications with working through what consent actually is for a three-way. Um, if you put in the time and work that out, then more power to you. Mm. That's what I'd say. And you are welcome at Paradox anytime. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if we would get like more or, or less or the same amount of these questions if like the church really developed that theology and culture of consent. Mm. And what that, I wonder how that would, uh, like over years of time, how that would change or not change the conversations and the questions that we have on this topic. I think it causes people to freak out because they're worried the church isn't telling them what to do. <laughs> right, right. It's too gray. And that's been an interesting experience for me, which is um, I'm, all, I'm all about sexual ethics, but I'm more interested in developing your sexual ethics and hearing what you have to say and how you understand it to be and what's okay and what's not okay, rather mm-hmm. than the church uh, distributing those. Now, if we were speaking to high school students, I would speak very differently. Yes. Um, but that's because I don't think high school students understand the long-term ramifications of what they're getting into. And I love, mm-hmm. I love being a youth pastor um, and they, high school students can really grapple with some deep things. Um, but there's times that you have to be a little bit more black and white with high school students. And I would say sexuality is one where you, where you do have to be a bit more black and white. But once they're adults, I think the more the church can enable people to develop their own sexual ethics, the healthier and more spiritual people will ultimately be. Mm-hmm. Adam. Please explain how religion and cultures, old and new, have justified rape and abuse so much as to often praise the abusers and condemn or shame the victims or promote rape or abuse to discourage homosexuality. There was a lot in that question. (laughs) There was. Give me one more pass at it. Please explain how religion and cultures, old and new, have justified rape and abuse so much as to often praise the abusers and condemn or shame the victims mm-hmm. or promote rape or abuse to discourage homosexuality. I'm going to go with the fact that most religions were designed by men for men mm-hmm. and men, um, men have raped women since the beginning of time and men like to protect other men and protect themselves. And so um, I understand there's a lot of faults when you look through the history of religion. Christianity has no exception. Um, and the more that we look at the fact that a lot of these religious rules were put in place to oppress and hold down women and to protect men, the more we can start to recognize how this still happens today. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, one thing that the story that often gets overlooked is Numbers 5, where God actually creates a system where if a man feels like his wife has cheated on him and she's pregnant, um, they can go before Moses and Moses will give her bitter, dirty water to drink. And God will actually cause an abortion to happen if the woman cheated on her husband. And if not, then she will be, uh, be able to give birth to the son or the daughter and it will be her husband's, it will be verified that it's her husband's. This is a very primitive, uh, sexist way of dealing with a man's insecurities and it's religion set up by men for men to protect men. Mm. Um, and it's in the Bible and I, I'm not advocating for us to get rid of it. Instead, we should talk about it 
and talk about how men have done this throughout history and how religion is often intertwined with patriarchy. I'm going to talk a little bit about Christianity and in doing so, I'm not trying to not acknowledge that this happened before the birth of Christianity too, but uh, when Constantine, who is the leader of, of Rome at the time, converted to Christianity, all of a sudden you have this kind of new thing that emerges where this really powerful empire is driven by both the empire and religion in Christianity. And since that time, Christianity has struggled with power and mm. how, and, w- when w- and when you struggle with power and when power is at the forefront, uh, abuse is just waiting to happen. And so you, you look at scandals like the, the spotlight story, um, which by the way, super recommend reading up on that and, and, the movie as well, if you if you haven't seen it, uh, to our listeners. Um, but when you have people in positions of power, all of a sudden, over time, it becomes about protecting the institution, about protecting the people in power, about protecting precedent over victims and over people who get abused by that very same power. So I think that uh, the reason that Christianity has often protected abusers rather than victims is to maintain that power structure that mm. Christianity has been fortunate, and I use that in, in quotations, fortunate to, to hold over so many years. Yeah, I, I think that is incredibly well said. Um, there have been verses over and over that have used to just demean women um, and to make them the property of men, which, you know, in like retrospect, like that is what kind of culture the scriptures were written in is women were the property of their husbands. But to transfer that to today is just horrific, but it is used. I preached the Proverbs 31 sermon um, in August. Was it August? Yeah. I think it was August. Proverbs 31 sermon, and in that research, just researching what Proverbs 31 has meant um, to Christendom over the years. I mean, horrific, horrific things. Well, uh, women are, are, you know, completely inferior to men, which means that she has to give of her body whenever the man wants, and if not, then the man has the right to forcibly take it. I mean, it's horrific. Uh, There's uh, the scripture in Leviticus where after they conquer the, you know what I'm talking about, they conquer uh, these, these cities and you take a woman as uh, your concubine, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Uh, they're told to wait a month before they, in effect, rape these women. Um, and yet that was seen as a really progressive thing within that culture. Wait a month? What do you mean? And <laughs> Yeah, it's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. Um, And yet it was a progressive movement. But because we refuse to look at this historical context, we just see, oh, well, that was okay then. So it's okay for men to do it now and to protect them. And it's women who are at the mercy of men. But when we look at scripture and this, oh, we were given this complete package rather than a growth of community and relationship with God and relationship with each other, we end up with, these horrific um, understandings of the dynamic between sexuality and violence. Mm. And I think it's, uh, I think we do ourselves a major disservice when we should actually be looking at the growth in scriptures and seeing how it gets completely more progressive and completely more egalitarian as you move throughout scripture. And we should 
ourselves be leaning into that. But mm-hmm. the church is very afraid to do that because they like to picture a complete biblical passage. Yeah. All given to us. Yeah. yeah. I found like so many of these discussions do come back to like, what is the nature of the mm-hmm. Bible? Mm-hmm. Because I think I alluded to this at, at Paradox After Dark, but so many Christians feel like they have to agree with and follow mm-hmm. the words of scripture and, and by the words of scripture, what I mean oftentimes is whatever happens to be well-known and popular in mm. mainstream Christianity during that time and that they have to apply that to their lives today, even if it's completely out of context or a different culture that we live in today. And so part of the the work that when people have come to me with questions of this nature is, is giving them the ability and the permission to say like, no, you can be Christian and still recognize that the bible doesn't speak to this or you can be christian and disagree with the bible it's okay like that's you're allowed to do that that's that's okay and you can still be a good christian because so many people have this duality where it's like well if i if i don't agree with that text in Mm -hmm. leviticus or i think that that's wrong or i'm like thinking to myself that's sexist well that means i'm not a real christian anymore because i don't agree with the bible and then what does that mean for my faith and it's like no that is sexist (laughs) and you can name it and (laughs) that's okay and be a Christian. Yes. And that's that's all right. The other thing I see done quite often with scripture is this um, this this complete erasure of the Old Testament. Yeah. Um, and I that's one of my pet peeves. <laughs> I see it done all the time and I'm just like, it makes me so mad. Um, with this, oh well, Jesus has fulfilled the old testament so the old testament is completely irrelevant and it's it yeah say except, something for, the, to except it. for the same verses that are against same-sex marriage we see yeah, the whole on yeah. the nose real tight which yes. is just awfully homophobic yeah. yes and so i just i think we do ourselves a really huge disservice because we're erasing this acknowledgement of the growth mm-hmm. of this community of god um we do a huge disservice and we need the old testament as horrific as it can be sometimes. Yeah. Um. Excellent. Uh, three questions left. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> this one might make you laugh. Why does sex before marriage always seem so much better? Because <laughs> <laughs> it's taboo. Yeah, it was just <laughs> yeah. about to say that. Because, yeah. yeah, if t- somebody tells you not to do anything when you do it, it, it seems yeah. so much better <laughs> in the moment. That's just, yeah, that's just basic human nature and taboo. Yeah. I also think there's not as much pressure like a marriage is a beautiful Mm -hmm. thing and also it's a lot of work Um, and so you're carrying you're carrying a load with your partner and so it's not as carefree and as I don't know as lightweight I guess you can say yeah Yeah. you're wondering why your partner didn't do the dishes yeah (laughs) 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 I I just I also think there's there's a a myth I mean our society romanticizes um the new when it comes to our sexuality, right? Mm. Like, for instance, mm. stories are told because stories are told and we often focus on the first time a couple has a se- sex because that's like a ch- turning point in the story. So we see movies that do this. And I'm not about to just sit around and blame movies, mm. but <laughs> we we romanticize those movies or those scenes are often told, whereas you rarely see a sex scene between a couple who's been married for 10 years. Mm. Um, and I think it's because it changes the direction of the story. And that's mm. why good filmmakers include that. I will just say that for me personally, some of the best sex my wife and I've had has been during our 10th year of marriage. And Mm -hmm. I don't think that it has to, um, it has to decline like some in society would tell you that it does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
I think sex with a partner, as long as communication is good, often gets better because you're learning each other and learning about each other more. And so, yeah. It's the taboo aspect. It's like, ooh, I've done something bad. Exactly. I think (laughs) Rob Bell said, like, he had a a mom come up to him after one of his talks or something and said, like, how do I get my sons to read read your books? And he said, ban them. (laughs) 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 Tell them they can't read them. That's the... Nothing quite like a restriction to pique our interest. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, it's because I'm a Harry Potter nerd. I'm just going to name it now. But (laughs) if you have read Harry Potter, there's this moment where Harry Potter is interviewed by this magazine and this terrible teacher, Umbridge, is like, I will ban it and creates this whole decree banning it from the school and Hermione the smartest person in the book is just every time she sees the poster she's like all giggly happy and they're like why are you happy she's banned it and she was like oh you silly boys like (laughs) if you knew like if the the surest way of making sure the entire school read it was to ban it yeah Yeah. I often think the church's mistake is that they told everyone to read the bible Oh. And if they would have said, don't read the Bible, it's really <laughs> complicated and really difficult for you to understand. It's going to give you wild ideas. Then people would actually read it. It worked for the Reformation. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I don't know. <laughs> That's the best yeah. idea. Thinking yeah. the yeah. Good times. That's Good times. Amazing. We need well, another Reformation. Well, one more thing on that, uh, when it, as it relates to sexuality, you know, uh, at Paradox After Dark, I, I think multiple of us talked about the importance of just talking about mm. sexuality with partners, with kids and, and that kind of stuff. Um, with your children Um, and one thing that author Peter Rollins was talking about who's been to Paradox I think I think he was at the Shadow once and Paradox once and I missed him both times one of my favorite authors but um, he was talking about like he was saying like if you want your kids to not have sex before marriage just talk about it with Mm -hmm. them a ton like nothing's less sexy than like your mom asking you yeah tell me how you touched that girl like tell me what you did to that that guy and that kind of stuff it's just like (laughs) it it just takes the desire right so yeah i think it just has so much to do with with taboo and opening these kinds of discussions i think it's just Mm so so transformative to to Mm -hmm. how we think and process those kinds of questions I'm, I might be mistaken, but I think, like, I mean, that whole discussion, I think that's important. And I think of, like, teen pregnancies, right? And I think there's been studies, and I hate to be so vague to reference, like, yeah. studies. <laughs> but I think it's been, it's been proven the more you talk about safe sex and the more you talk about sex, even teen pregnancies drop. Am I? I could be totally wrong. I don't, I don't know. I mean, there's so many studies. It's hard yeah, to tell now. That's true. Um, but uh, I mean, I've heard, I've heard conflicting things mm. as well as I've heard that. So I don't yeah. know which one's actually true. Fair enough. Well, <laughs> take it or leave it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Manny. All right. This is more a comment. We have to be careful about victim shaming. Quote, porn is a sin, unquote. Sex slavery, the filmers are sinning. Yes. Uh, okay. Um, and here's why I'm laughing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what is inherently sinful about taking a picture of a naked body? I can't, yeah, think, I of can't anything, think of anything, right? Like there's nothing sinful in taking a picture of a naked body. Even take the picture out of it. Is there a sin in just being naked? Mm-hmm. No, right? Like we can all agree with that. So then you get in the question of whether sex worth work is is ethical or not. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had some differing opinions mm-hmm. on that in some shape or form. But I think that ultimately, if there's agency and there's representation, there's there's 
there is room to understand that this could be an ethical practice. It's legal in Australia to be a prostitute. Mm. It's legal in Amsterdam to be a prostitute. So it's not wild for somebody to say that it's, it's moral to be a prostitute who has agency. Um, but understand that you may have disagreements with this and we may disagree about things and that's why we're having this conversation because mm-hmm. there's this understanding that this is what the line is and everyone agrees with it when the fact is the discussion is much more interesting and much more telling than all of that. And um, there was a documentary that just happened, uh, it just, didn't just happen, it was about 10 years ago it came out, of what happened when a stripper started going to church at Sandals Church in Riverside. Really? And just what she faced and the discrimination she faced and how much people hated her at the church. They were fine with her being at the church as long as she stopped dancing on the pole. But she didn't want to stop dancing on the pole because that's where she made her money. Mm. Um, and I'd highly recommend watching that movie. Mm. Um, it ends on a very strange note. I don't want to give it away. But, <laughs> but I think it should ask all of us, um, what happens when a porn star or a porn director walks through our doors? And how are they treated? And how are they perceived? Um, and how would Jesus treat them? And whenever Jesus would treat them differently than the church would, well, the church has some work to get back in line with Jesus. Mm-hmm. So, um, yes, the discussion is, is nuanced. The discussion is complicated. I get all that. We've talked about commercialization of porn mm-hmm. can lead to sex slavery. We get that. But at the same time, we have to treat everyone the way that Jesus would treat them. And I think that Christians in America today, especially Protestant Christians, have missed this and could do a much better job. Yeah, looking at the question, it seems to be a little bit more of a language question now that I'm kind of re-looking at it. Um, Porn is a sin. Um, That phrase seems to be the phrase that is victim-shaming. And it seems to be... If I'm and if I'm understanding, you can look at it if you would like. Um, but it seems to be that it's a it's oh. completely There's not. There's parentheses and quotation marks. I know that it's I did like not a, get when I'm you read so it. Sorry. I'm That's so sorry. I'm so sorry. That's fine. <laughs> um, but it seems to be that the phrase "porn is a sin" is condemning those who yeah. might be in sex slavery. Um, and yeah, so I therefore see. clarifying, it's not those <laughs> who are... That's a question you have to see in person to get. So yeah. So just got a rant of nothing. <laughs> I, I mean, it's valid. <laughs> All of the something. things that you said, I think it speaks a bit to this. Um, but it's the, f- it's the people who are almost profiting, profiting from the sex yeah. slavery that's a sin. Um, I don't know what the language would be to, to fix that or to offer a different suggestion. Or Anytime here. the church is telling millionaires that profit off of sex workers work that they should um, pay their sex workers better. I believe they're doing what Jesus would do. Agreed. All right, Adam, next question. When saying save sex for marriage, that's in quotations, how should we define sex and how do we define marriage? A marriage of love is vastly different to a marriage of convenience. Hmm. Can I just disagree with the premise? Sure, go for <laughs> it. Okay. I don't know if we should be saying save sex for marriage. And I think, mm-hmm. I th- yeah, I think that's where I kind of push back against the question because I don't think that's a helpful way of approaching sexuality. Um, that's where I'm at now. Anyone else want to <laughs> go? I would say that um, you're going to be, co- you have to be comfortable with a line if you're not going to have sex before marriage, right? Mm. And I don't think there's anything wrong with 
waiting until you're married to have sex. Yeah. yeah. Um, that was personally my experience. I, mm-hmm. we waited and that's, that's who we were. And you know, we were happy with that. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I, I don't like the message when society says it's impossible to wait till marriage. I mm. I'm like, it's totally possible. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, at some point, even if you say I'm not going to have sex until marriage, uh, sex will be part of your romantic relationship before marriage, whether that's kissing or other things in between that you will have to decide kind of where your line is. And then you've got to match that with your partner. And this is where communication is the key. And this is where you start practicing communication. I'm comfortable with this. Mm -hmm. I'm uncomfortable with this. I like this. I don't like this Mm -hmm. to be able to start working on those conversations is important. I know people who are still happily married that didn't kiss until their wedding. Um, and I saw them kiss for the first time and I felt weird inside (laughs) (laughs) by this. Um, but they're still happily married and it worked out for them and they had to communicate. I don't want any, I don't want this to be part of it. And, but they would hold hands. Mm. So that's, so sexuality was still part of their relationship, even though they didn't kiss. Um, I, uh, so that's where I would say that sex is part of every relationship, every romantic relationship Mm -hmm. that you will have to discuss and talk about what you're comfortable with and what you're not comfortable with. And as the relationship grows, you may change your uh, ideas of what's okay and what's not okay and what you like and what you Mm -hmm. don't like. And that's human nature and that's okay. And so I think the more that you can communicate, the more you can talk about consent, the healthier relationship is going to be because the goal is not to just make it to the finish line of marriage and then have sex. The goal is a healthy, happy relationship, regardless if you're married or not. Um, And so talk about what you need and what you want to give to make your relationship healthy mm. and happy. Yeah. I think piggying back, pegging, what? Piggybacking? Piggybacking. Yeah, <laughs> 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 I was like, that's not right. Uh, piggybacking off that, um, knowing your own boundaries is important. Excellent. Um, and so walking into a relationship and being into a, a relationship and knowing how far you want to go. What is that limit for you? I think is a way better way of saying what qualifies as sex before marriage. I think the better question is Mm -hmm. where is your own boundary and what does that look like? Um, And are you going to be practiced in saying no and and setting that boundary for yourself? I don't think you should get into a relationship unless you're able to to name those boundaries. I don't know. That is a very firm stance I just took. So (laughs) I feel a little, yeah. Yeah, I think I would say so. And I think it's always better to be more conservative with your boundaries than, than, at the, at the beginning yeah. to make sure that you're okay with it. Mm-hmm. Like, cause it's really hard to take things back. Mm-hmm. Um, and what nobody ever told me is that you have to have those same conversations about boundaries after you get married yeah. as to what you're comfortable with, what you're into, what you're not into. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just as important after you're married as it mm-hmm. is before. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I would, I would say the same thing with, with you, which is if you're not comfortable setting a boundary, um, and communicating about that boundary, uh, whatever it is, whether it's wh- whatever it is, um, then I'm not sure you should be in a romantic relationship. Yeah. Like that's not the time to get into one. So yeah. Adam, what do you think? This question talked a lot about defining like sex mm-hmm. and marriage. I don't know that we want or desire the church to come out with a statement. Like if paradox mm-hmm. came out with a statement and said, sex is considered anytime you touch someone's genitals. Mm-hmm. Like, all that's doing is creating more shame, more anxiety, another checklist as, as was alluded to earlier. I don't think that that's something that 
we have a desire to do, or at least that I'll just speak for me, that I have a desire to sit there and define exactly how far you can go until you get to that line and and that kind of stuff. I think it comes back to what both of you are saying about boundaries. And I loved what you said, Craig, about continually having those conversations about what you're comfortable with and they change over time and that's okay. That's, Mm -hmm. that's part of life and that's part of being a human is that your preferences and desires, wants and needs change over time and Mm -hmm. having a, understanding of God and Christianity and sexuality that accommodates rather than limits those things, I think is, is important. That's lovely. We did it. We did all the questions. Yes. <laughs> Made it. So, Hey, thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you have any comments, please don't hesitate to email me at Craig at paradoxredlands.com or Mandy or Adam at paradoxredlands.com. Uh, thank you for being part of a church that's willing to have these conversations. Um, we've had some really good feedback as far as things we can do better next time. Um, and we'll let you know how that goes, but we just want to thank you for being part of this discussion. And we hope that wherever you are listening, that, uh, you know, that you are loved by God and that we wish that you see and embrace Jesus Christ in all. 